You take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 6, or Romans, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 6, not Romans chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. Perhaps you've heard the statement, uh, all good things come to an end. Okay, it's a, a Proverbs, which is an idea that a proverb is just something that is generally true, not always true, but from human perspective, it does seem like that all good things come to an end. I was thinking about a statement like that and was thinking back and, you know, you think as a child, in many ways, there are many carefree things that you have as a child. You don't have responsibilities. You aren't working. You didn't realize you had to pay for taxes and insurance and all these things that you were going to have to worry about as a kid. Uh, I remember back uh, one summer and it would have been between my sixth and seventh grade year. It was 1984. And I can remember that summer because there was just a whole bunch of things that went on uh, in our household. There were things that uh, I was able to do just project-wise, uh, hobby-wise, that I was just really thrilled to have those three months off of school to be able to do whatever. Uh, our family went out to uh, that year out to Colorado. It had been our first year to uh, go out west that far. We always went to Kansas, it felt like, every summer. But that summer, we went out to Colorado and enjoyed being out there. It was the summer of 1984 where they had the Olympics here in the United States, and so everybody was following that and just seemingly enjoyed that. But it came to a screeching halt the third week of August. You know, why is that? Because uh, school kind of started. It wasn't really school. It was that we had soccer practice, and soccer practice back then, uh, they've gotten a little better about this, but we had soccer practice on an August afternoon right at 1 o'clock in the afternoon outside. And from 1 to 3, we started off running for 2 to 3 miles, and, and then at the end of practice, ran back and forth, and it was a miserable experience, and you suddenly realized, uh-oh, school's coming, and uh, all the, the, the good that seemingly was there is uh, now going to then, you know, end up in school, which school wasn't bad, it was just, you know, it was different. There wasn't the freedom that was there. And in a sense, as you read Genesis chapter 6, there are good things that are coming to an end. You've had in a reading before this, as we've gone through the passages in Genesis 1 through 5, we've had about 2,000 years of human history that we know we have there. If you take the ages and just kind of uh, stretch them out, at least 2,000 years of human history that's gone on. We've not had too many details, just a few people mentioned like Enoch and Lamech and Lamech and then that guy who lived really, really long, Methuselah, 969 years. And, and you just have mankind doing what they're supposed to be doing. God said, go and replenish the face of the earth. That uh, You have children, you multiply across the face of the earth. And that's what mankind is doing. God's gracious. People are able to have family and have children and uh, have that type of thing going on. But in Genesis chapter 6, that ends. And you say, why does it end? Well, it's not God's fault that it ends. It's mankind's fault that that ends. The good things, the blessing that seemed to go on, suddenly we're going to find, as we look next week and we talk about Noah's flood more directly, you've got God's judgment across the face of the whole earth. Everything suffers as the result of this. 
And for us, as we look at Genesis chapter 6 here this morning, we need this theme just to be in our mind because it ends in verse number 8. It says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, There's this hint that even despite all of good things ending, it's not for everyone. There's still grace, good things extended to a certain individual. But we need to see in the theme today is just simply this, that the grace of God for most people, comes to an end when mankind's heart and actions are always sinful. You can only stretch God's grace so far. You can only take His mercy so far. And suddenly, when mankind just says, I'm going to continue in this, God says, okay, fine. There's an end to my grace. There's an end to my mercy. And you go to this passage, and as we read this morning, it, it does have some different things going on. And I want us to just simply, first of all, simply come up with this understanding that the compromise of godly people affects future generations. Okay? The compromise of godly people affect future generations. And we'll get to this in a second, but what I want us to note is that this is a very difficult passage to translate because there's a number of questions of what's going on. I'll just list them for you. I mean, this is not uncommon. When you look at commentaries and you look at Bible studies and this type of thing, they're going to admit this is not an easy section to translate in the sense of just coming up and going, okay, here's what we're talking about. I mean, you've got things going on where you have the sons of God and the daughters of men. You go, what's that? Who's this? And we'll talk about what the controversy on this is in just a second. Or you get down in verse number 3. My spirit shall not always strive with man. His days shall be in 120 years. Well, what is that 120 years describing? Okay, no one's really sure on that one. Uh, who in number, verse 4 is this. Who were the giants in the earth in those days? And who are these individuals that became mighty men, which were of old men of renown? And verse 6, what does it mean that the Lord repented? I mean, think about this. We're, we're expected to repent of sins, but, but you have the Lord there repenting. And you, you go and you just kind of go through all of this and you find this, but then even at the end, how in the world does this thing of grace work? So you have just a number of different things that as we go through here this morning, we're just going to have to say, okay, here's what we think and here's why, as I as a pastor have just kind of gone this route uh, with where we're going and you might have a slightly different opinion than what I have and there are good scholars that have uh, are divided on many of these things. It's not that they don't like the Bible, it's just that they're going, okay, we, we think this is what's going on, understand that, but I think as uh, we go through, you'll understand what the overall message, I think Moses, uh, through the, the, the moving of the Holy Spirit, was trying to get across in a passage like this. Okay? It's the end of the chapter. Okay? Realize that because in verse 9, as we look at next week, it says these are the generations of Noah. Remember, we said that was Moses' chapter references. Okay, he goes, you, want, you know where, where I want, I'm starting a new chapter. This is the new chapter I'm starting with. So we're kind of at this end of this chapter. The first 2,000 years of recorded human history that we have. 
And you say, okay, so what's going on here? Well, it says this, it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth, daughters were born unto them. Okay, this is what God said. I want you to, to go and multiply across the face of the earth. Enjoy what's there. Uh, work with the ground that's there. Use what's there and have children and enjoy this. And that's what he told them. And so you have this going on, like God said. And then verse 2, it says this, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. Now, the question rides on the fact of who are the sons of God. I'm going to give you up front the three major opinions, and I'm going to then work my way down to the one I think it is. There are three different opinions on who the sons of God are in this passage. One of them is this, is that people think that it's a reference to angels. Okay, that's one of the, the ideas that are there. We'll get to that in a second here. The second one is this, is that it's referring to rulers or judges of some kind. The third view is this, is that, that it is referring to the descendants of Seth. Okay, these descendants, uh, you say, who's Seth? Seth is uh, the son that Adam and Eve had after Cain killed his brother Abel. And it's this line that we call the godly line sometimes because they're the ones who call upon the name of the Lord. They're the ones proclaiming the name of the Lord in the world that they live in. And so you go, okay, so why in the world would individuals think, first of all, that possibly this, this name, the sons of God, took the daughters of men or the daughters, uh, the, the daughters of men, uh, humanity, uh, why do they think this could possibly be angels? And they've got good reasons why. As you go through the scriptures, first of all, you find uh, oftentimes that the angels are sometimes described as the sons of God. You have this in the Psalms sometimes. They're described this way, and you look at the context, and you're going, oh, it's referring to angels. These angels, the sons of God that are praising God for what he's doing, and, and angels are sometimes called this. And you have passages of Scripture that seem to indicate that angels did something that they shouldn't have done way in the past. You go, where are those located? Well, uh, you could, in a passage like this or in your notes, whatever, mark down a passage like Jude verses 5 through 7 or 2 Peter 2 verses 4 through 6. See, both of those contexts are talking about people who are false teachers that are leading people astray. They're leading people from God by their teaching. And then those writers both use illustrations of the Old Testament of people who were judged or individuals who were judged for their sin. Okay, for instance, Jude chapter 1, or Jude, not Jude 1, Jude verses 5 through 7. There's only one chapter. Jude writes this, I will put you in remembrance that ye once knew how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. You go, what, what happened? Well, there are many that were delivered in the nation of Israel, but they were destroyed in the wilderness because they didn't believe God, wouldn't follow God. And it continues this way. 
And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities in them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. See, you have this passage that's talking about, okay, people who didn't follow God, they were judged. And then you have these angels who left their first estate, and they're in everlasting chains. I mean, what it's saying there, there are, understand this, that the angels, uh, excuse me, demons are fallen angels. Okay, angels that chose not to follow God. And they're free to roam right now. They're doing a work of, of pulling people away from following God, and God has allowed this. But it seems in this passage that it's describing that there are some of these fallen angels that can't do anything. They're bound up. They're chained. And we're not told why. But the next passage after this is talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And you go through the passage there and you know what the problems of Sodom and Gomorrah were. And you just kind of go, okay, did it have something to do with physical activity by these fallen angels that they then, you know, sexual activity of some kind, that they were then bound away? I mean, it's not the only passage that describes this. 2 Peter 2, verses 4-6 through 6 says this, For God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And it says this, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, and condemning them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that should, should live ungodly. It's a warning to people who are going to live without God. But it's in the context of, okay, God punished angels, held certain of them in chains. They can't go around right now. Uh, they aren't able to do anything. And it's followed by Noah's flood and followed by the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. See, there are certain individuals that would say, okay, what's going on here is that there was an attempt by these angels to create some sort of race of people that would defy God. And you kind of go, okay, so we don't know certain things here. We don't have any statement of what these angels did that bound them in darkness and held them in chains. And, and I have some difficulty with this view because there is a statement of our Lord when talking about marriage. See, there was a question of whether or not it was okay for people to get divorced or not and all of this. And, and the Lord is attempting to answer the question uh, of this. And then eventually he receives a question about one who had seven husbands and whose husband uh, would be her husband uh, when she finally got to heaven. It was a trick question, and the Lord doesn't play their game. And in fact, he gives them a little bit of instruction. He makes the statement of this uh, about the angels. He says this, You do err, not knowing the Scripture nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Realize this, angels don't get married. They don't have children. Each one of those angels, when they were created, were unique. 
God created each one of them. They were specifically made the way they are. They've been that way for generations. They don't have children. There's no cousins and nephews amongst the angels or brothers or sisters. They're all uniquely created by God. And God says, that's not what's going to happen. You're not really going to worry about those things in heaven because you're going to be like the angels. They don't worry about those type of things. They don't get married. But there are people that say, and, and you do have some of the early church fathers that took up this view that what you have here is there's an attempt by uh, the devil and some of his following angels to try and somehow corrupt the human race. Okay, that's one view. The second view is this. It is that these individuals that are the sons of God that took the daughters of men and saw that they were, because they were, saw that they were fair, are people who were judges or in leadership. You know, why is that? Because in the Psalms, you find at times leaders and judges called the sons of God. They're described this way. They're in the place of God. You say, why are they call the sons of God? Because a person who's in authority is representing God. God, who's in authority, he gives his authority and responsibility to individuals on earth to take these things up. He gives fathers and mothers responsibility for their children. He gives them authority to reflect what he's like. He gives authority to government for them to reflect what God is like. And it seems like for some, they look at this and they go, okay, the sons of God, it could refer to people who were in leadership roles in this time of Noah or before Noah that took up their roles and that they abused their leadership roles. That perhaps they were in some cases just taking whoever they wanted to marry because they were the ones in power and they could do this much like you had kings in ancient times would go and get themselves harems and the like, that perhaps this is what's going on. They're abusing their power. They're, they're doing violence to take whatever they want, including whoever they want to marry. And so there are some that believe that this view of who the sons of God are are perhaps individuals who were leaders in this time that abused their power. And there's a possibility that this could be the case. But the third view that I go with, and I say this because I feel like it fits the context, okay? I feel like it fits the context is that what we're talking about here is that you have individuals who are in the line of Seth who start marrying into families who have decided that there is no God or they've gone away from the presence of God. And that's what happened with Cain in Genesis chapter 4. What does Cain do? He goes from the presence of the Lord. He lives as if God doesn't exist. He doesn't have a part in their life. And you have this line who is from the line of Seth where it talks about them in Genesis chapter five, 4 and 5 that they're the ones who begin to call upon the name of the Lord. They start to proclaim the name of the Lord, that there is a God, that He really does exist. He really is there. And they're living their life as if he really truly does exist. And as you look at the story, it seems to make sense. 
that you have this godly line that is doing what they're supposed to be doing in a world that is godless, is going their own way without God, and they're proclaiming the name of God, but what they suddenly decide to do is this, is to go and say, well, it might be okay for us to marry some of these individuals that don't believe that there's no God, that they don't care that there's not a God, or they don't want to listen to God, that it's okay for us to marry them, and they do it on the basis of seeing. Okay, look there in verse number two. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, or we would use this term, that it was good. It sounds like what you have, and and Moses is playing on this, it sounds like when you have Adam and Eve in the garden, and he's appealing to them to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you read what uh, you have uh, Eve do there, she saw that the tree was what? Good for food. It was not something she was supposed to have, but she looks at it and goes, oh yeah, that'll be good. Here you have men that are ones who are declaring the name of God and believing that he exists, saying, well, it's okay for me to marry them. They're fair, they're good looking, and that's okay that if they don't believe in God for me to marry them. And it makes sense because as Moses is going to go on with the people that he's writing to, remember what Genesis is written for a group of people, specifically targeting them. You go, who's that? You have a bunch of people who are going to enter into a new land filled with a whole bunch of people who don't believe in God. The Canaanites, ones who have no care about God and are involved in all sorts of sin, they don't care. And Moses is going to warn them time and time again in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, don't get mixed up with them. Don't marry them. Don't do it. Because you do this and it will destroy you and the generations to come. It's really what Moses is doing here is setting up a a illustration for these people to understand. Okay, you may think it's okay. You've got your reasons. But don't do it because a union like this will affect future generations. I mean, this is not, as you think through the Scripture, this is not a new idea. Because when you get to the New Testament, you've got the same type of thing going on. Believers, followers of God, people who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's this warning, don't compromise, don't bind yourself together with individuals who don't care about God, who ignore Him. I mean, think about this, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passeth away, the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I mean, that's kind of this idea. Why does human life kind of end here in this section? Because of Noah's flood. They don't live forever because they're not following after God. They're made friendship with uh, Warhold. 
Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 14 through 18, this statement, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion or fellowship hath light with darkness? What concord or agreement hath Christ with Belial, Satan? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, an unbeliever? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, I will be their God, and they shall be their people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, which I, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my, my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty." See, even the New Testament seems to indicate and warn people about the fact if they're followers of God, don't make yourself bound to individuals who don't believe there's a God. Don't make an agreement or covenant with them or a vow. This is why we tell people, listen, if you know Christ, don't marry somebody who doesn't know Christ. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to go well going to be difficult and hard in those cases i mean throughout the scripture there is this warning of individuals who decide that they're going to be okay and it won't affect them but they forget about the fact that that type of union may not directly affect them but it will affect generations to come See, this is where we get into verse number four, where it says, there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, they bare children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old men of renown. Now, the question is, what does it mean by this word giants were in the earth at this time? There's only one other passage where this word is used uh, in the Old Testament, and it's the time where the nation of Israel went through the promised, or their spies went through the promised land, and you had the ten spies that were talking about the land, and they talked about a group of people that were from the, the tribe of Anak that were giants, and that Israel would be like grasshoppers to them. They would not affect them. They couldn't hurt them. And so you go, well, is it the idea of giants? Well, most of the people looking at this are going, I'm not sure that this is what the word, what this word means. It's a very obscure Hebrew word. Many tend to think that that word Nephilim, which is the word, the Hebrew word behind it, has the idea of fallen or violent. Okay, what you have here in this time period that you have just before the flood, you have these individuals who are known for their fallenness or their violence. And I think you're going to see that when God looks at them and says, every imaginative of their heart is only evil continually. But you have these giants that are in the land, and then the statement, the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bare children to them, the same became, and you ought to underline that phrase, mighty men. Okay, this is a word uh, that is used throughout the Old Testament to describe individuals who were warriors, who were soldiers, that in combat did great things. They were called gibberim, or, or mighty men. That's the term used to describe them. 
And ultimately, these men, through battle, were making themselves known. It describes them that they were men of renown. And you ought to underline that term, renown, that it's just simply this word. In the Hebrew, it's the word Shem. We get the word, uh, the, the name for the tribe of Shem, or the son of Noah that's named Shem. But his name means this, name. Okay, these are men of name. They're, they're, they're making a name for themselves. Well, how are they making a name for themselves? If they're mighty men, they're soldiers, there's much violence going on here. It seems like even though you had these individuals who were followers of God, they married in these families, it seems like their children ended up being ones who were out fighting and were violent and they were known for their exploits in battle. They made a name name for themselves that way. And so you get an understanding just from a hinting of these names that we have a time period where God comes and He sees this and it's a time of a great deal of violence. War. Fighting. People trying to make a name for themselves by their violence. By their sinfulness. And some of these people are descendants of people who once proclaimed the name of God. Their children and grandchildren are the ones that are involved in all of this. So when you look at this, the the passage, as we said, verses 1 through 4, is describing the fact that the compromise of godly people affects future generations. Okay, your compromise... And your, uh, your willingness to dabble in the world and say, it's okay, it's not going to affect me that much, it does affect future generations. And it does here. And you have generation after generation. You have 2,000 years of, you know, we, we think about the population here. You could have had billions of people living at this time. If you multiply the math out and you have what's going on here, you could have had a whole group of people not just a couple of, you know, a couple hundred people we're talking about here. We're talking about large population of people. If you just do the math and you have people having children and children and grandchildren, multiply it out exponentially. The generations are affected by this and this decision of the godly individuals to marry into uh, individuals who had left God, abandoned God, gone from the presence of the Lord. And what you have in verses 5 through 8, and really in verse number uh, 3 also, you have this, that God sees and judges the continual sin of mankind. It's not that uh, you have a God who started the world off and just said, okay, you're on your own. You know, I've got other things to do, you know, other hobbies, and I'm just going to wander off from what's going on there. And you just kind of go your course and do your thing, and uh, it'll be okay. No, you have a God who created mankind originally in the Garden of Eden to what? Remember? To fellowship with them. He walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the garden in the evening. He created mankind in the image of God. They're a reflection of what God's like and his character, his personality, and who he is. And he even breathed into him specifically the breath of life. He formed man out of the dust of the earth and took special care in creating humanity. 
So he created mankind. So there's a vested interest in God. He created this, but he's got these individuals that are supposed to reflect his character in the world that he put them in, and he's interested in fellowshipping with them. So he's observing everything that goes on. He sees all this. For at least 2,000 years, he observes what goes on, and he sees what's going on. You see the statement, verse number 5, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. I mean, he sees this. I mean, you're reminded of passages of Scripture that remind us of the statement that God sees everything. Proverbs 15 and verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Now, we will see at the end of this passage that God beholds good. For some reason, Noah receives grace from the eyes of the Lord, in the eyes of the Lord. But what he's seeing here is he's observing all of this, beholding the evil and the good. Is the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the whole of the earth. You have in Second Chronicles, we're told that. He sees this, and he sees how great man's wickedness is. You look at this, and as mankind is there, it says that every imagination of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. I mean, God can see the heart. God is the heart knower. He knows what goes on in your heart. It's not that he just has to observe actions. He knows the inner recesses of your heart. He knows your thoughts. And as God's observing this, you have individuals that can't think of anything but self. Anything about, but pleasing themselves and gaining what they want for themselves. And as a result of this, they're plotting to do evil to others in order for them to gain what they want to do and what they're wanting to do and consuming their life with is contrary directly to what God is saying should be done. And he just looks at this and he sees their heart and everything they think about is something that is contrary to one who knows God. And it's reflected in the actions, as we said. In verse number four, you've got these people who are violent, cruel, selfish, trying to make a name for themselves. I mean, that's what selfishness is. I'm trying to create a name for me. Every part of them is doing this. And as God sees this, you see in verse number six, kind of a restatement of what we find in verse number three, and we'll go back to this. It says this, that it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. It's almost the idea it grieved him into his heart. It's like something that pierces his heart. God sees this and he repents. Now, does he go, oh no, I made a mistake when it came to creation? You absolutely not, because he goes through creation and he says every aspect of that is good. And so he's looking at this and going, it's not that I'm upset and I made a mistake when I created the world. That's not what he's repenting of. No, what he's repenting of is just simply this, is that the good that he has given to mankind and the protection and the care that he's given to him, or we might say mercy and grace, God's going to go, all right, it's over with, and now it's time for justice, judgment. Because remember what God said about the soul that sinneth, uh, it shall die. 
Or as the, the, the scripture says, it shall surely die. Sooner or later, it's going to die. And God just simply goes, mankind's going his own way. And it is about time that they understand that you can't continue in this and think that it's okay, casually going about sin, every imagination of the heart, and that it is not something that offends God. That it's wrong. And so from man's perspective, there is a repentance on God's part. 2,000 years, people are living and they're marrying, as you find in the New Testament giving commentary, that they're marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking before Noah goes into the ark. They're living life the way they are. They're enjoying the bounty of life, but they're ignoring God. And God says, okay, time's up. You say, how much time did God give them? Well, go back to verse number three, and you have this statement of the Lord as he's observing this failure of mankind. It says in verse three that the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he is also flesh, or we'd say mortal. Okay, he's got a short-term lifespan here. But his days shall be 120 years. Now, here's another one of these difficult things. What are we talking about as far as 120 years at this point when God says a mankind has 120 years? And there's two views on this, and both of them uh, have uh, merit to them. One is this, is that after you look at the time of Noah's flood, what starts to be the average age of humanity? About 120 years. In fact, the person who wrote this book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, Moses lived to be 120 years kind of seems to be God's standard for a time. And then you get into the Psalms and God says uh, that it is, we talk about this three score and 10, 60 or 70 years. And if the Lord's gracious, he gives 80 years. You know, it just kind of seems to be the lifespan of mankind. I mean, you find it in the scripture. But some have suggested the fact that God says, listen, they're not going to live to be 969 like Methuselah. Now mankind's going to live to be 120 years. That's the lifespan I'm going to give them before they die. But there are others that would say this, that it could very well be God saying, okay, I'm giving 120 years until I judge. That at this point, God sees this and he goes, okay, I'm giving 120 years and then I'm going to bring the flood. And that Noah, and and Noah probably didn't build for 120 years but he could have. Okay. Did he need all the time, 120 years to build it? Maybe, maybe not. But God's just simply saying, I'm giving 120 years and then I'm going to judge. So it could be either one. Mankind's lifespan is going to be shortened either way, that it's not going to be the 900 years, it's going to be 120 years now, or they've only got 120 years before the flood happens. Either one, there's this understanding that God says, time is up. I have to judge. I have to come to a point where I can't allow this to continue on the way that it is. And you look at this and you go, okay, what God is going to do, and you find it this way. Verse 7, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. The idea there in verse number 7 that I will destroy, the idea is blotting out. It's used to describe uh, in the book of Jeremiah an individual who goes through and is cleaning dishes 
And when you're cleaning dishes, are you getting rid of everything? Hopefully you are. Now, if you're, you know, a teenager, you know, water, you know, put it away. It's okay. But, but if you're cleaning dishes properly, okay, you're going to blot out any remembrance of anything that was on that dish. And that's what God said he was going to do in Jeremiah to the city of Jerusalem. He was going to wash it off like a plate, clean it off. There's nothing there. There's not going to be any remembrance of that city where it was at. God was going to clean it or blot it out like a plate. And you know what? That's what happened at the flood. You talk about what happened at the flood. You have a worldwide flood. Everything changes. Okay? Nothing's going to be recognizable as far as geography when it's done. Individuals that lived on that earth, the earth at that time aren't going to be there anymore. Animals that are not in the ark are not going to be there anymore. It's going to be a clean slate, a clearing. And that's what God declares is going to happen. I'm going to clear things off and we're going to restart with the human race what's going on with Noah. And so we go through this, that God gets to a certain point that he sees and judges the continual sin of mankind. He cannot let it go. And I say this to you, you may be in here today and you're going, you know what, I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. Guess what? God is still going to judge. Now, sometimes God is long-suffering. New Testament tells us that God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but to come to repentance. He's desiring individuals, and it's not that God's going, oh, I'm okay with what you're doing there. Go ahead and sin. Do what you want. Be selfish. Destroy others. Be violent. No, he's, he's not simply saying that and saying, okay with it. No, he's going, I'm going to give you a chance. I mean, the world is going to have a chance when it comes to repenting because noah we're going to find from the new testament as we look at his life is a preacher of righteousness he's declaring god to a generation going what in the world is this guy doing building a boat in his backyard and he's just simply praying and preaching there's a god and you're responsible to him and you need to get right with him that's his preaching and so God will judge sin. You aren't going to get way away with sin that God's just a merciful grandfather that gives you whatever you want and is okay with whatever you do. No, eventually you're going to have to stand before God and give account. But we do see in verse number 8 this glimmer of hope. It says this, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And you simply say this, God extends grace to those who live as if he exists. See, what's going on in this world is they've abandoned God. They're going their own way. They're doing their own thing. They've gone from the presence of the Lord. And you have this individual who's in this line, Noah, who still acts as if God exists. We're going to look at this passage next week, but just look at verse number 9 in the description of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Here's an individual who's looking to walk with God. He knows he exists, and he is trying to fellowship with him, and he walks with God, which means daily in and out in his activities. He's considering there's a God out there. I live my life in relation to the fact that he really does truly exist. In my dealings with individuals, when it talks about him being a just man, that's talking about his dealings with other people. He says, I ought to be a reflection of what God's like in my dealings with other people. 
and that he's perfect, the idea there is that he's in right relationship with God. He's reflecting on God. This does not mean he's without sin. But we'll find next week that the book of Ezekiel, when it's looking for righteous individuals to try and save the city of Jerusalem, Ezekiel makes very clear this, that if Noah and Job were here, God still wouldn't save this city. I mean, Noah is held up as an individual who is one who's living his life for God and as if he truly does exist and he's held up as a standard. But you look at this passage, it does say in verse number eight that Noah found grace. Okay, he's not merely saved because he did a lot of works. That, that idea that the grace is extended to him was that Noah had sin in his life. He wasn't a perfect man. I mean, God, God should have judged him also. But why does God extend grace to him? Why does God give him something that the rest of the world didn't give? It's because of this, that you have an individual here who's living as it, by faith that God really truly does exist. He's like his great-grandfather Enoch, uh, who we find in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews chapter 11, that was described as one who walked with God and was not. And then it says right after that, that if without faith it's impossible to please God. And the person who's trying to please God is one that first of all has to believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder or the judge of them that diligently seek him. And that's connected to Enoch, the grandfather of Noah. So it is, Noah's reflecting the same thing. He's living as if God does exist and that one day he's going to have to stand before him and God says, okay, what I'm going to do in the situation of this flood, I'm going to give you grace that no one else is going to get because you're one who is looking to me as if I truly exist. You have faith that I am and that you're one day going to stand before me. So what I'm going to do is give you something you don't deserve. And that's salvation from the flood. See, in the midst of the story, and we, we think about it in our present day, we live in a generation where they do whatever. It's about self. I, mean, I was thinking about this when I was downtown with the, the evangelist, and we were at the, the Bean and we were there. You go, what's the bean? It's that thing that looks like a bean in downtown Chicago that reflects and everyone takes pictures by it and whatever. It's not even called the bean. It's Skygate, but whatever. Uh, we all know it as the bean, affectionately. But we were there, and while we were there, we had some of the team that was taking pictures, you know, of them as a group in front of it and whatever because they're here in Chicago, and that's iconic and, and the like. But then there's this person that's there, and she was you know, dressed all in black and whatever, but she was there and there was a person over here trying to videotape her and she had this, her phone set on the ground and she is attempting to make some sort of just video there. My guess is something, it's probably something to go on Instagram or TikTok or something like this, but she's there and she's in the middle of everything and you go, what's she doing? She wants to do something well enough to get a bunch of likes so people go, hey, this person's fantastic and you suddenly become an influencer and it's all about you influencing everybody else. You know, we live, we live in a generation that, that, that we magnify self. It's all about us. 
what we can do, what we want to do, what we want to be. This is why we have people confused about what they really are. We live in a generation like that, and we all are like this. We are selfish. We're self-centered at the core of our being. We're prideful individuals, and we're deserving of the judgment of God. But you know what? God, even though we go our own way, is willing to extend us things that we don't deserve. Last week in the, the meetings that we had, we had the, the one sermon on the prodigal son. Individual who received his inheritance in advance, abandoned his family, went and did his own thing, spent his money on riotous living, doing his own thing, living in sin. And he eventually got to the point where he realized that he had destroyed his own life. He had spent foolishly, and as he's sitting uh, in that pig pen with the pigs that are there and realized this, that, you know, the pictures you might see of pigs that look so nice and clean, you know, there are people that, you know, have them as pets in their home now. I'm just like, really? If you've ever been to a pig pen, you realize it's a very messy, disgusting, smelly filthy. I mean, it's, it's hard to describe if you've never seen it and been there. And he's sitting in this, and he says this, that he suddenly comes to himself. He gets in his right mind, and he realizes, listen, even the worst of the servants in my father's household receive much better than I am. I'm not worthy to even be a part of my father's household, but if I go back to him, he might be gracious to me and give me a little bit of mercy and grace. And you see in that story, he goes back, and it's not that his dad goes, okay, well, you know what? You need to pay back everything that you've taken from me, and you need to do that. No, what he does is he meets his son, he falls upon him, gives him a hug, he kisses him, and he gives him the best of a robe, he gives him the best of everything, and gives him a feast. And you go, well, that's undeserved. Yeah, that's grace. That's mercy. When individuals turn from their own selfishness and they turn to God, in a New Testament sense, as we understand this, you turn to God through his Son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. A person who goes, I've got nothing. I can't offer anything. In fact, I've destroyed my life. Is there any way of reconciling with God and being right with him? And you have it in Jesus Christ, the way. He died to give us an opportunity to have grace that we don't deserve. We sin again and again and again in the face of God over and over again. But yet God goes, I'm willing to offer grace to those that come to me as if I really do exist. And they're trying to fellowship with me and they realize they, that I've given them my son as a gift for their sacrifices. They deserve to die. So who died in their place? My son died. He took the punishment so that you can enjoy things you don't deserve. That's grace and mercy. So this story in Genesis chapter 6 is just a reminder. We live in a world that seems to be spinning out of control, and it, it's getting worse. And sometimes we as Christians get affected by that, and we kind of go with the world, and we forget sometimes, as we see in the first part, that our decisions to compromise can really affect generations to come. We may be okay, but the next generation is going to be uh, at odds with God. 
But even in all of that, that God is willing to offer mercy, grace. You go, why? Because he loves us. As you find in Romans, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You go, what was that? Romans 5.8 tells us it's a demonstration of God's love for us. His love was commended to us demonstrated to us and so as we read a passage like this it's a great reminder that god will judge someday sadly it may be quicker than we think and for some that many are not prepared for his coming and for us as believers there is a responsibility for us to like noah warn people you're not prepared to meet god you're not ready to meet him And those that aren't ready to meet God need to meet His Son and accept Him and find the mercy and grace that God does want to deserve or to to give. God's not up there going, I wish everyone would die. That's what people read the Scripture and they go, oh, that's what the, 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 the Old Testament's about. No, here this passage makes very clear. God's a God who wants to give mercy, grace. He wants to display that. And so for us, we live in a world like this, Hopefully you're an individual who's experienced the grace of God in the midst of a world that is headed one day to judgment. Okay, not by flood, but by what? The scripture tells us. By fire. He will come back someday and we will be judged. The question is, are you one who's prepared and received the grace of God? Lord, we thank you. Our generation is not too different than the generation that was there five, four or five thousand years ago. People living for self, doing their own thing. Waxing worse and worse. Times we think that there couldn't be any worse violence and, and uh, insanity. And then someone disproves our thought as we watch the news. It's getting worse and worse. But Lord, help us as individuals in this room to be ones who reflect that we know you. That we're ones who act as if you truly do exist and that we are ones who walk with you. We can walk with you because of what your son has done on the cross. Our sins are taken care of. That thing that would separate us from you is taken care of on the cross because of Jesus. Uh, Lord, may we be individuals that reflect a knowledge of you like Noah. Lord, if there's one in here today that still going their own way, hasn't met the Savior, hasn't met Jesus Christ, uh, may they feel the burden that they're under the judgment of God, that you're not a God who will let sin go. If it's not repented of, that you will eventually judge. May they feel that burden, that weight, and come and accept your Son who died for their sins. May they do that. Lord, help us as we go out today in in our ways that we go, may we be able to rejoice in the grace that we know because of your Son. As we go out into a world that is swirling with every imagination, of evil possible we thank you lord for your son and in his name we praise you amen